Well, I invite you to take your Bible, if you would, and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I would imagine that many of you have been to funeral viewings or perhaps even open casket funerals. I'll never forget myself the first experience that I had with that as a five or six-year-old boy. Uh, My father and I went to the funeral of a man in our church, and you know, five years old, you're, you're no much more than this high, and I'm literally at that height. I am face to face with this man and his corpse, looking eye to eye to him. I did not like it at all. It was just awkward and uncomfortable as my father and I just stood there kind of in silence looking into that casket. And there he was. He, he was in his finest three-piece suit. His hair had been combed, combed over and slicked. His face had uh, been painted with some kind of makeup to portray natural skin tones. His eyes were closed, his hands were crossed, and there he was, sleeping in his casket. In that box, there were no signs of life. All that there was was a corpse. A few days ago, there was life, but not anymore. There was no heartbeat. There was no twinkle in his eye. There was no breath, basically just cold death. And I think that there are many churches and many Christian families and even many individual believers who are like that spiritually. There's really no sign of life. There's no heartbeat. There's no breath. Or maybe there is. I'm not saying that these people aren't necessarily saved. Um, But often that life is faint. Many Christians show very few signs of life and health. And so I want to ask you, what about you? How many signs of, of spiritual life and health are there? Are there signs of life? In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 15 to 27, we see a man who is very, very, very much alive. His heart beats in his chest. His eyes sparkle with delight at the prospect of what lies ahead. His chest is full of the breath of life. There are many, many signs of life in this man. But perhaps the most telling of all is that he's willing to give whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. He's willing to do whatever's needed for the sake of the gospel. The gospel is what makes his heart beat. And by way of example, the Apostle Paul summons you and I to give whatever it takes for the gospel. Do whatever needs done for the sake of the gospel. If you were here with us last week, in the first half of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul argued that he had certain rights or Christian liberties. He gave special attention to his right to earn a living by means of gospel ministry. And he explained uh, that in Corinth, the gospel actually caused him or drove him to forego that right in Corinth. And that's where we pick up today. And in the text that we're going to look at, we're going to note three signs of spiritual life in the Apostle Paul. And these things should be in all of us. Uh, Three things that we're going to see about him is, is he lived a life of endless denial. And also a life of astonishing flexibility and a life of champion self-control. And all three of those things in the apostle's life were driven by a singular passion. And so we want to look at those three signs of life and basically ask, do I have those? And I hope that as, as we look at Paul's example, you will be both inspired and simultaneously challenged. So let's dive into these three signs of life. The first is endless denial. But not, not just endless denial all by itself. Endless denial driven by a singular passion. Look at verse 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll read down through verse 18. Paul writes, But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. 
For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Uh, What do I mean by endless denial? Well, Paul was endlessly denying himself his rights and Christian liberties. In fact, in the last section, he just argued about what some of those rights were. He had the right to eat and drink, we saw in verse 4. He had the right to marry and to raise a family, verse 5. He had the right to ministry compensation, verses 6 to 14. He had other rights as well. But look at what he says there in verse 15. He says, but I've made no use of any of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, speaking specifically of that right to ministry compensation. He says, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Paul was willing to sacrifice his livelihood, his comfort, uh, his health, his dignity, his emotions, and even his life for something. And one wonders if really there was anything that he wouldn't have given up. Why is he forgoing the rights that are his? There's got to be some reason for that because the sacrifices that this man is making, they're not natural. Why would anybody do that? There's something that's driving this man and making his heart beat. What is it? Well, it's one thing. He has a singular passion. And we need to identify what that singular driving passion is. So maybe what we could do is we could ask a few questions. It's almost as if Paul is prompting us to ask a few questions to help us understand why it is that he's not exercising this right of his to ministry compensation. And at first, he's not just going to come out and say it really directly. He's going to kind of wind and meander through the forest. And we're even going to kind of struggle to follow follow along with him a little bit. And then it'll kind of come out at the end, I think. But a few questions that Paul's perhaps inviting us to ask is, well, what does Paul value? Well, if you look at the, the second half of verse 15, he says, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Uh, There in the second half of that verse, Paul put two different values on either side of the scale. On one side of the scale, value number one is his life. He says, I would rather die. Okay, that's one side of the scale, his life. And on the other side of the scale, he mentions another value, which he basically refers to as his boast or his ground for boasting. And he puts those two things on either side of the scale. Which one comes out weighing more? Uh, By the way, when he used that word boast, Uh, And in the English language, that has some negative connotations. And sometimes as you translate from one language to the other, it's hard to find an exact equivalent to the original word. But as Paul uses the word boast, uh, you probably shouldn't take that in any sort of arrogant way. Uh, But basically the idea that Paul has something that he can confidently assert. That is his boast. Something that he can confidently assert. And so when Paul puts these two items on different sides of the scale... His life and his boast. Which one carries more weight to him? Which one does he value more? Well, he makes it very clear. Whatever this thing is called his boast. Whatever this thing is that he can confidently assert. That's what he values. And so then he begins to invite us to ask a second question. What on earth is that boast? And at first, Paul doesn't tell us. 
Again, he's kind of meandering through the trees a little bit. He, he tells us actually what his boast is not. He clarifies that his boast is not preaching the gospel. Look at verse 16. He goes, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Paul gives us three reasons why preaching the gospel cannot be the thing that, that he boasts in or the thing that he can confidently assert and delight in. Why is that the case? Because he's under compulsion, he says. In verse 16, he says, for necessity is laid upon me. God had chosen Paul. God had set him apart for the task of preaching the gospel. Uh, when Paul speaks about how he had this compulsion, he may have been speaking of some type of inner compulsion within him that he couldn't get away but he's most certainly uh, get away from, but he's most certainly speaking of the Holy Spirit's compulsion on his life to preach the gospel. That was his calling. That's what God had summoned him to do. And so he's not boasting in the fact that he preaches the gospel because he's under compulsion to do that. And second, because he would be chastened if he didn't. In verse 16, he says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He's saying, God has called me to this. If I go pull a Jonah and run away from my calling, I will find myself under God's chastening hand, just like Jonah did. And he gives a third reason why preaching the gospel is not his boast. And it's kind of the same idea, because he's without a choice. Look at verse 17. He says, for I, if I do this of my own will, and he's implying that that's not exactly what's going on. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. Paul didn't go into gospel ministry of his own choice and of his own volition. Uh, on the flip side of that, nor did he go into gospel ministry against or contrary to his will. But God had called him to this. God had summoned him to this. God had put him into it. And in Paul's words, God had entrusted him with a stewardship. He's God's slave. Paul's boast was not that he preached the gospel. How could he do anything else? And so we're invited then to ask a third question. And again, Paul's just kind of meandering a bit through the trees to, to lead us out to a conclusion. What does Paul find rewarding? Well, according to verse 17, he doesn't find it rewarding to preach the gospel and then uh, be monetar monetarily compensated for that per se. Sure, that's great, that's fine, that's his right. But look at verse 18. He says, what then is my reward? What then is my payment? That in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul just told us what he finds rewarding. It's preaching the gospel free of charge. And he expresses that uh, that is some kind of payment, reward, or compensation. How so? Well, have you ever wanted to do something really special and nice for someone that you loved? And you want to do something for them and you came up with some plan. This is what I'm going to do. I want to do this for this person. A few years back, my mom wanted to do something really special for her dad, my grandfather, uh, and his wife. And what she wanted to do, I don't think my grandfather was very interested in hopping on an airplane and flying anywhere. So what she wanted to do is, is put him and his wife uh, basically on an all-expense-paid-for train that would take them all the way across um, the United States to where my mom was living in California. And that it wasn't just a passenger train where you just sit there. It's like a hotel train. And very costly uh, gift and something so that she wanted to do for them, for them to have this little vacation and be able to come out to California. It wasn't cheap. 
Sometimes when you do something nice for a person like that, uh, what happens is that the person feels somewhat overwhelmed by that, maybe even a little guilty that you, you did this big thing for them. And so they want to offer to pay. They want to offer to help. And I'm sure that's probably what my grandfather offered. And I know exactly what my mom did and insisted on. No, absolutely not. I want to do this for you. Let me do this for you. Why? Well, because as the Bible says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And that seems to, to be what Paul's getting at. My, my payment is, I, want to, I just want to do this. Particularly here in Corinth. For you, but ultimately for Jesus. That's why Paul is forgoing his right to ministry compensation in Corinth. He knows that for him to take money from Corinth would, for whatever reason, hinder the gospel there. He stated that in previous verses. And so he forgoes his right. He gives it up. His payment or reward is being able to confidently assert that he does all things for the sake of the gospel. That's going to be his wording here in a few verses, that he does all things for the sake of the gospel. What's his boast? It's that. So what's the singular passion that drives this man? It's the gospel and its advance. That's what's making his heart beat. It's that singular passion that drives him to a life of endless denial. What's getting Paul out of bed in the morning is the gospel. What's driving him to forgo his rights is the gospel. I think Paul's example here is meant to revive dead corpses like you and I often become. It's like your heart has stopped beating and someone uh, comes and and they they grab the AED machine off the wall and they say clear and then boom. And they give you a jolt to your heart. Let's get this thing restarted. What is it for a Christian that gets them going? It's the gospel. And so Paul, through his example and, and through his words here, is admonishing you and I to give whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. That's what we do as Christians. To what degree are you willing to forgo your liberties and make sacrifices for the gospel? Spiritual life is marked by that. It's marked by endless denial that is driven by a singular passion, the gospel. And if you want the gospel to advance, and if you want to see people trust Christ, and you want to see people grow to look more like Jesus, you are going to have to forgo and sacrifice some things that seem like they should be yours. Like what? Well, Exhibit A with Paul is rights. And there are going to be times you're going to have to be willing to say, yep, I'll give those up. But other things as well, your resources, your your money, your time, your energy, your sleep, other things, your comfort, your good feelings, and your life being all peaceful and in order. Your emotions, your heart. Seeking the, the gospel going forward in its advance, that always comes at a cost. This is not an easy endeavor, but people who are spiritually alive do it. They live a life of endless denial driven by a singular passion, the gospel. The second sign of life that we see in the Apostle Paul is astonishing flexibility. He's astonishingly flexible. There's an elasticity to this man in ministry. And that astonishing flexibility is too driven by a singular passion. Look at verses 19 to 23. Just kind of want to read the whole paragraph before we jump into it. Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant, we could even say a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. 
To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all. And this, this is Paul's boast right here that, that we've been talking about. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That's what Paul wants to confidently assert. That I may share with them, with other people, in the blessings of that gospel. Paul's singular passion hasn't changed as we move to this next paragraph. It's the exact same thing. What is Paul's singular passion? It's the gospel and the gospel's advance. And how does he word it here? Well, Paul wants to win people. That's his language. And in verse 22, it becomes clear what he means by that. He says that by all means, I might save some. Paul wants people to be saved. He wants them to be one to Christ or one for Christ. That is his singular driving passion. That is what's making this man's heart beat. And it results in astonishing flexibility. Look at verse 19. He says, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant or slave to all that I might win, or we might even put synonymously there, save more of them. Paul was free in Christ. He had Christian liberties and he had rights. And what he says is that he made himself the slave of all people. So that those people that he was making himself a slave to might be saved. In other words, Paul adapted himself and his behavior to the people that he was trying to evangelize. And he's asking questions like this. What creates a barrier to the gospel and to gospel ministry? And can I flex so as to remove any of those barriers? He flexes, so to speak, to remove hindrances to the gospel and speed it on his way. It's it on its way. And what's described in these verses is often referred to, uh, kind of the big technical word for it, is contextualization. We see from Paul's example that this thing called contextualization, when it's done properly, it doesn't flex on the gospel. Uh, Paul is not going to change the gospel message. He's not going to change the message that he's declaring to people. There's no room for wiggling or compromising on that, Uh, nor does contextualization done properly flex on morality. Paul is not redefining morality to adapt the church or himself to the culture's ungodliness so that they can somehow win more people for Jesus. To do that is wrong. But what Paul doesn't want, he doesn't want the people he's evangelizing to stumble. He doesn't create over anything over which they might trip or get trapped and not come to Christ. However, once you get outside the realm of the gospel and outside the realm of morality, Paul is willing to be astonishingly flexible in order to advance the gospel. And he's going to give us three examples of that, of what he means. And his first example is the Jews. Look at verse 20. He says to the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. And to those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. You know, the Jews had a lot of things that were really important to them. All, I mean, all kinds of things. Things like circumcision, things like food laws, things like special observances and, and the Old Testament law as a whole. These things are 
extremely important. These things are the Jews' heritage. Paul wasn't under the law. Even though he was a Jewish man and had grown up under that, he, he did all of that before coming to Christ. But now he doesn't have to do any of those things. But in Paul's mind, if he were to blow those things off, so to speak, the Jews would probably slam the door in his face before he ever had the chance to share Christ with them. And so he did what Jews do. Like what? Well, we actually have a few examples in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, we see that Paul uh, circumcised Timothy, his traveling ministry companion. Because Paul and Timothy know that they're going to minister to Jews, and they know that this is a really, really big deal. And, and Timothy was kind of, a, his heritage was a mix between Jew and Gentile. His mom was one, his father was the other. He's got this mixed heritage. And so Paul and Timothy decide, you know what we need to do? Timothy needs to be circumcised. So this doesn't become a stumbling block where, where the Jews don't even listen to the gospel message because this Jewish thing with Timothy. You know, circumcision, Timothy's a full-grown man. Circumcision in the ancient world didn't happen in a medical facility with anesthetics. And this is what they're doing. For the sake of the gospel. Uh, another example of Paul with the Jews in Acts 21 verses 19 and following. Paul goes through all the Jewish rites of purification. What is he doing? He's, he's doing some of the exact same things that the Jews are doing. But he's doing them for totally different reasons. The Jews are living under the Mosaic covenant in a failed attempt to relate to God. Paul knows though that... <laughs> Listen, guys, like Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. He's not answerable to the Mosaic covenant anymore because Jesus answered it for him as he did for you and I. Rather, what Paul's doing, he's living within, not under, but within the Mosaic covenant as a means by which he relates to Jews in order to advance the gospel among them. There's a huge difference between what he was doing and what they were doing. What Paul was doing had nothing to do with he wasn't doing those things to relate to God in any way. He was just trying to advance the gospel. And what that meant was he was giving up his liberties so that that could happen. He gives us a second example, the Gentiles. Verse 21, he says to those outside the law, basically anyone who's not a Jew, he says, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Now he's talking about Jesus, or Gentiles. They didn't care about the Old Testament law. It's not a big deal to them. You know, the, the, the Mosaic Covenant and the Jews, yeah, that we maybe think they're a little bit weird. The Gentiles don't care about the Jewish law and the Old Testament. Uh, all those things that the Jews were doing. So, so Paul's not bringing up all the Mosaic Covenant with them and bringing it into the, the equation. He dumped all of his Jewish stuff, his heritage, when evangelizing Gentiles. Among the Jews, we, we could say, well, he would have been kosher. And among the Gentiles, he was non-kosher, not a big deal. Neither of those things mattered to God, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that these things tend to matter a great deal uh, to both religious people, the Jews, and non-religious people. Interesting, I, I think, very important observation about this whole thing called contextualization. Even though Paul's not under the Old Testament law, he makes sure to clarify 
that he's not lawless. He's under the law of Christ now. Christian freedom and contextualization must never be construed as some kind of license to be sinful, ungodly, or immoral, all in the name of reaching more people for Jesus. It gives us a third example. And this third example takes a very interesting twist. The third example is the weak. Look at verse 22. He says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And then he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them, the Jews, the Gentiles, the weak, and, the, and its blessings, the blessings of the gospel. I don't know if you caught what the interesting kind of twist is there in that verse. Who are the weak? They're actually kind of in a bit of a different category than the first two groups because the first two groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, he's trying to evangelize them. But who are the weak based on chapter 8? Well, the weak are actually, they're believers. Back in chapter 8, we learned about them. They were there in chapter 8, verses 7 to 13. These are people who are already saved. And so what does Paul mean when, when he does things for them so as to win them? And to win them means to help them keep living for Jesus and not do things that will spiritually derail them. That, that was chapter 8. If you go eat in an idol's temple, meat offered to idols, you, there's a very real chance you are going to seriously derail your brother spiritually. What do we just see with the Apostle Paul? We just saw a man who was saying, I love every, every single one of these people. I love them all. Jew, Gentile, the weak. And my goal is not to have a church or a heaven that looks just like me. And my goal is not to have all of my rights and all of the things that I want satisfied. So consequently, he's willing to make huge sacrifices. He's willing to flex. He's not sitting there thinking about, well, this is what I need and this is what I want. He's thinking about, okay, here's the question. What's going to advance the gospel? And what is it that I need to do to make that happen? Christians can be really stiff and inflexible sometimes on things that really don't matter much. The inability to flex often hinders gospel advance. Uh, you know, wood is uh, stiff by nature. How do you bend wood without breaking it? Well, my understanding, there's several ways that that can be done. But one of the things that you could do is you could uh, build a, a, a box of some sort, put your wood in there, and then fill that box with steam. You steam it. The steam produces flexibility. What needs to be applied to a stiff Christian to help him flex? The gospel. The steam of the gospel. If the gospel is not permeating every fiber of your being, if the gospel is not sinking into you, you're probably not going to care that much about people coming to Christ. Like that might not even really be on your radar. And you're probably not going to be very flexible. The gospel had so permeated Paul's heart and his soul and every fiber and fabric of his being that it caused him to bend and flex and say, this is not about me. And so the big point, give whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. To what degree are you willing to flex for it? Spiritual life is marked by astonishing flexibility that's driven by a singular passion, the gospel. Uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 31 to 32. Here Paul gives us a great summary of what we just saw and considered, and it actually comes in some really well-known verses. 
Paul says, whether you eat or drink. Remember, those are Paul's freedoms. Those are your freedoms. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And then verse 32, give no offense. The idea is that that stumbling block idea to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone and everything, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many. Why? That they may be saved. That is the goal. So some questions for you. Are you too entitled to your Christian liberties? Really? These are my rights. These are my freedoms. And I will exercise them. Are you too entitled to those? Something like this is spending time with people who are lawless people below you. I don't have time for them. Are you stiff and stuffy? You're not willing to bend or flex on anything. And I think there's two sides of stiff and stuffy. There's the the legalistic stiff and stuffy side, and there's the libertine stiff and stuffy side. Uh, The libertine stiff and stuffy side is, these are my rights and freedoms. I'm not going to sacrifice them. I will do this. That's stiff and stuffy. And the flip side of that is the legalistic side. Oh, no, no, it's got to be this way. I'm a Jew. This is my heritage. I'm not going to bend or flex. There's two sides of stiff and stuffy, and both are really, really bad. Here's a question for you. I think a really relevant question to the world in which we're living in now. How do you evangelistically contextualize, like what Paul was doing and arguing for here, in our lovely world of COVID? Have you thought about that? I mean, really? I think that's actually a going to be different for all of us, right? There's a reason it's called contextualization. You have a context. My context is slightly different than yours, and yours is different than mine. All of us are living in a little bit different world right now, relating to different people. And so it's legitimately really, really complicated for sure, and a lot of things could be argued in two totally different directions legitimately. But I think it's worth thinking about a few things. How do you evangelize people who are all over the map right now on COVID, literally all over the map. I mean, you got the people who are absolutely, this is the biggest, craziest thing that's ever happened in their lives. Maybe they're horrified of it and whatever the restrictions and requirements and things are, they're just 100% with that. And then you've got the people on the flip side of that who are like, no way, never. And everybody in between. Okay. Well, how do you evangelize people who are all over the map on COVID? How and in what way should you flex or not flex? And perhaps a follow-up question to that, is there anything that you could do in our, in our current context and setting or that you might be doing now that could trip someone up from coming to Christ based on the situation that they're in? You know, gospel advancing should impact your thinking and mine on COVID. We at least ought to be mulling those things over in our mind. And I'm not here to tell you what you should do on that. I'm just saying, like, it's complicated. But if we have this heart and we care about the gospel, we'll actually think through those things. We'll actually take the time to process that and and think about more than just ourselves. Paul, as he concludes his chapter, turns our attention to a third and final sign of life from this text. And that is champion self-control. And again, it's driven 
by a singular passion. The Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympic Games, were held every year in Corinth. And likely drawing from that imagery, the imagery of those games, Paul shows what it looks like to manage one's Christian liberties for the sake of the gospel. And that requires champion self-control. Look at verses 24 and 25. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. In a foot race, several contestants line up on the starting line, but Paul is quick to highlight not everyone running wins. You need to run in such a way as to win the prize, and he's highlighting the way in which you run. His focus isn't so much even on winning or running, it's how you run, the manner in which you run. Champions train, prepare, and run, Paul says, with self-control and discipline. And look at verse 25 again there. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. In the Isthmian Games, champions were crowned with something that was very, very valuable to them, but not really worth anything in value. They were crowned with a pine or celery wreath. In the race we're running, we're running for something eternal and lasting. We're running for the sake of the gospel. We're running for the sake of eternity. Look at verse 26. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Uh, Paul switches the metaphor now to boxing. And just like a runner runs with purpose, a runner's running to win. So the boxer fights or punches with purpose to make an impact. He's not like a boxer who's uh, throwing punches into the air, shadow boxing as some kind of form of training or something like that. The Christian life isn't shadow boxing, it's fighting to win. And we would maybe ask, well, who's Paul boxing against? Who's he fighting? And many would say that it's the next verse that tells us who his opponent is. Look at verse 27. But I discipline my body. He beats or bruises his body and keeps it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He's using body there to refer to his whole being, to his whole self. Who's his greatest opponent? Well, it would appear that Paul is saying, my greatest opponent and seeking to advance the gospel is probably not Satan. It's probably not the world. It's actually me. He's landing blows and trying to knock his selfish, sinful self to the floor. He's his own greatest obstacle to gospel advance. And Paul recognizes that. In order to run the race and win the race, he he recognizes I must exercise discipline and self-control enough to endlessly deny myself of my rights and flex to astonishing degrees for the gospel. When a runner trains and he races, he's not asking himself, what feels really good right now? What do I want right now? My legs are burning. I think I'd just like to stop. No, he summons himself as the burn and the pain comes. He summons himself to denial and that pain so that he might win the prize. And that's the Christian's life. It's not about you. It's not about what feels good and what you want. It's about the gospel and its advance and people coming to Jesus. And that's what must be your singular passion. Look at verse 23 again. This is Paul's boast. The thing he confidently asserts and doesn't ever want to get to the point where he can't. Verse 23, I do it all 
for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them and other people, with other people and its blessings. Paul wants other people to come to Christ and he wants to enjoy eternity with them in the presence of Jesus. His eyes are fixed on eternity. And so the question for you, the question for me is, what about you? Give whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. To what degrees are you willing to exercise champion self-control for the gospel? Spiritual life is marked by that, and it's driven by a singular passion. By the way, Paul's not the hero of this story. Wow, wow, you know, Paul's really great. I wish I could be like Paul. <laughs> no, you don't, you don't understand. He was just doing what somebody else had taught him. Who did Paul learn this from? Jesus. What Paul is describing is literally exactly what Jesus had taught him and modeled for him. What Paul is describing is exactly what Jesus did so that you and I could be saved. What did he do? He humbled himself. He laid aside his divine rights and his comforts. And what did he do? He flexed. He demonstrated astonishing flexibility and he came to earth and he died. He came to humans. He became a human. Where do you think Paul got this idea of to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Gentile I became a Gentile? Jesus to man became men. To men became a man. Why? So that you might be saved. You may be sitting here thinking, wow, that's quite the life Paul lived. But I would just say to you, do you realize what Jesus did for you? But everything that we see here with the Apostle Paul, that's what Jesus did for you. He endlessly denied himself. Jesus Christ has existed from all of eternity in the glories of heaven with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the triune God together for all of eternity. Enjoying the glory of heaven and each other. And what did Jesus do? He denied himself. And he came here to earth in the form of a baby. To men, he became a man. He took on humanity. He added humanity to his deity. Setting aside so many of his divine rights. He denied himself. And he, what did he do? He took up his cross and he died on it. To pay the price for your sins. He made this sacrifice as your substitute to satisfy God's wrath for your sin. Why? So that if you would repent of your sin and you'd say, God, I'm a sinner. Oh, you saved me. I believe, in, I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he died on the cross to pay the price for my sins and he, that he died and he was buried and he, he rose again. God, I repent and I believe. And consequently, we are restored to God. For those of us who have done that, we have eternal life. And if, you don't, if you've never been told what Jesus has done for you, it's amazing. We'd love to tell you more. I'd love to tell you more. If you understand, well, God wants you to repent. He wants you to believe. And that is, he's offered you life through his sacrifice. As we wrap up here this morning, I just want to ask you this. Have you ever noticed that spiritual life is most clearly defined and marked by death? All the signs of life that we see in Paul are actually signs of, of death to self. He's taking up his cross and he's following Jesus. He's doing exactly what Jesus did. He's taking up a cross. And he's following Jesus to go die on it. 
And yet we seem to want a Christianity without crosses and a life without sacrifices. We want a church uh, where we don't have to do that and we want disciples to be made without that having to happen. It will never happen that way. That's not Christianity. To what extent are you willing to sacrifice for the gospel? To what extent are you willing to sacrifice so that people can hear about it and so that people can grow in their faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ? It will require a death and the death that's required is yours and mine. Christianity is not about your rights and your comforts and your freedoms. It's about a cross. Do you look like some dead corpse lying in a casket? Or do you look like Jesus? God wants you to give whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. Would you bow your head?